Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. I'm your host, Alan Ayers. Episode 1.1, The Age of Discovery. I want to begin today by welcoming you to the first episode of the Political History of the United States. I'm your host, Alan Ayers. Before we jump into the story today, there's a few quick housekeeping matters that I want to cover. This should hopefully explain to you what I'm trying to do here with this podcast. This podcast main goal is going to be explaining the political history of the United States. Everybody always talks about how the United States is this grand political experiment. I want to dive into these questions and look at exactly how this government came to be, how it functions, and how the events drive the government. If you're looking for a podcast that is going to explain troop formations during the Battle of Antietam, then you're probably in the wrong place. If, on the other hand, you're looking for a podcast that will explore the political ramifications, both short-term and long-term, for the Battle of Antietam, welcome. The podcast is going to function as follows. I plan on releasing a new episode every two weeks, with Sunday being the day that I plan to release new content. Every episode will range between 20 and 30 minutes, though I do expect at times I'm going to end up deviating from that. The podcast is going to be then further broken down into seasons, with every season focusing on a specific era and set of events. When I wrap up a season, I will take a short break while I prepare content for the next season. I'm going to try to get this done in such a way where every season is going to be pretty much self-contained. That means somebody could jump into any particular season without feeling too terribly left behind, though of course I'm going to encourage all of you to take this from the very beginning. Your mileage will vary, but that's going to be the best bang for your buck. With that, I'd like to introduce our first season. The plan for the first season is going to be moving through those early colonial years. Specifically, I plan to focus on the colonies in place before 1650. And while other colonies are going to spring up after that, it's going to be this first group coming over to places like Jamestown, Plymouth, Massachusetts, that really are going to pave the way for that future expansion. So my goal for this season is get those colonies up and onto their feet. When I started planning for the podcast, the first question I had to answer is where to start. Now, this is not as easy of a question as one might imagine. The first permanent English colony in what would become the United States was Jamestown in the spring of 1607, and that does seem like a good starting point, right? Well, it's not. The goal of the podcast is telling the political story of the United States, the events that led us to where we are today. And while the story of the American colonies does officially begin in 1607, it is events in Europe that would dictate the first systems of government that sprout up in the colonies, the economy, the religion, all of it. So, for the initial period at least, the story of politics in the proto-United States is a story of politics in Europe. Because of that, before we make our way across the Atlantic, I want to spend the first several episodes looking at the political, economic, and religious situation in Europe on the eve of the first American colonies. This will answer the question of who were the first colonists and what were their motivations for coming to the New World. So the first several episodes are going to be a quick survey of Europe, specifically England, in the 16th century. Before we can do all that, however, I think it's really important to step back even further and take a very, very quick one-episode tour of the Age of Discovery. Now, this podcast is absolutely not going to be focused on this area, and if you're truly interested in the era, this probably isn't going to be the in-depth episode that you're hoping for. The goal for today's episode is to give you a half-hour tour of the Age of Discovery and explain how Europeans found themselves crossing the Atlantic. Finally, before we begin today, I want to make a note about names, people, and places. 
Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, I am genuinely terrible at correctly pronouncing people's names. So, I'm going to give the preemptive apology for any names that I butcher throughout the entire course of this show and promise that I will do my absolute best to get it right or at least get us as close as possible. All right, with that, let's dive into some history. To begin our story of what factors led to the Age of Discovery, we must begin looking at the events that pushed countries to begin seeking an alternative route to the Indies. For thousands of years, the main way to move goods between the East and the West was the Silk Road. Europeans depended on the spices and silk and other goods that came across this road. Now, the Silk Road had spent centuries as the main path between Europe and Asia. Lucrative spice trade moved across it, as well as silk, other textiles, and other luxury goods that the European population demanded. The goods would move from Asia into Constantinople. From there, the Republic of Venice had control. Venice would get the goods and then sell them to the rest of Europe, acting essentially as the middleman. Now, the other European powers were not thrilled with the situation. It was far from ideal for them, and they would have always preferred to work without the middleman. However... Prior to the 1450s, nobody had really been able to challenge the Venetian stranglehold. Things, however, would change in 1453. While Venice controlled the trade, they were dependent on the goods from the Silk Road making it into Constantinople. In 1453, the Roman Empire finally vanished from this earth. The fall of Byzantium led to the rapid decline of the Silk Road. The overland passage suddenly became much more difficult to travel and far more dangerous. Likewise, the Ottomans were more than happy to keep the goods and act as the middleman themselves and reap huge profits on Europe. Wanting to find a way to avoid the surging prices from the Ottomans, the ideal solution became finding another route that did not depend on the Silk Road and kept the European nations out of the often dangerous waters of the Mediterranean. The most logical route here, therefore, was to travel down along the coast of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, and then up towards India. While the focus in the second half of the 15th century was traveling around the African Cape, at least up until that final decade, the idea that sailing west may be the faster route did exist. In 1474, Paolo de Pazzo Toscanali suggested that a faster route to India may be traveling west by seas and circumnavigating the globe. Toscanali was a leading figure at that time in the Florentine Renaissance and was known as a humanist, physician, astronomer, and mathematician. Using figures from Ptolemy, Toscanali became convinced that the distance from Europe and Asia sailing west was only about one-third the distance of the globe. Toscanali believed that the Asian landmass was quite a bit larger than it is in reality. Toscanali shared his findings with Ferno Martins, a priest at the Cathedral of Lisbon in Portugal. He sent him his findings as well as a map of what he believed the ocean to look like. At Toscanali's request, Martins brought the map and the finding to the Portuguese court, who at that time was under Alfonso V. Toscanelli was hoping that the map would influence Alfonso V to let a journey go west to see what they find. At that time, however, Portugal was not interested, instead looking for a way to move around the Cape of Africa. Though unknown at the time, the more important development came from a young sailor from Genoa who learned of the map and requested a copy from Toscanelli. The sailor, of course, is Christopher Columbus. 
Christopher Columbus was born in 1451 in Genoa, which is in modern-day Italy. Him, along with his brother Bartholomew, believed that you could reach the Indies through a western path as opposed to having to travel around the African Horn. With the map provided by Toscanelli, the brothers sought out to seek a sponsor for this endeavor. Bartholomew headed up to England and France, where he was rejected by Henry VII of England, and met the same fate when he approached Charles VIII in France. Bartholomew failed to ever secure the financing. To make the matters worse for him, by the time he returned finally to Spain, Christopher Columbus was off on his second voyage. Christopher Columbus decided to approach the Spanish crown, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon. When Columbus first approached the crown in 1489, Spain rejected the idea of the journey. Now, they were interested enough that they chose to put Columbus on a commission, hence keeping him in town and, much more importantly, keeping him from going anywhere else, in case in the future they changed their mind. The initial concern was over the math that Columbus had done. Mathematicians and cartographers in Spain believed, correctly, that Columbus had underestimated the distance between Spain and the Indies. Not a great start to get your math wrong. The concern was that with the underestimation by Columbus, and by him not fully understanding the size and circumference of the Earth, the venture was going to cost significantly more than Columbus had originally anticipated. Now, ultimately, the crown was correct. Columbus's math was wrong. And furthermore, Toscanelli and his map had misjudged the size of Asia. Now, this is something we're going to discuss in a few minutes, and this is going to end up having major implications on the voyage. Ultimately, however, as we all know, the Crown eventually does decide to support this mission. Columbus was able to gain more interest from Isabella and Ferdinand II by stating that he had hoped that he could use the wealth he gained to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims. This brings us to our first point of why did Spain fund the trip? The Spanish military at this time is at a high point. They had just forced the Muslim influence off the Iberian Peninsula by winning battles at Granada. Columbus came to them with a journey that was relatively low risk for the Spanish, yet brought with it the chance of extremely high reward. The crown, having just finished their last war, had resources to spare at the moment, and the only true risk was that either Columbus would be lost at sea, taking his crew of approximately 90 with him, or that he would simply fail in his mission. Beyond that, and a small amount of resources, there was very little actual risk to the mission. The reward for the Spanish, should the mission succeed, was threefold. The first objective was to spread Catholicism. Now, this is a big deal at the time. We are living in an extremely religious time. Remember that Spain had just kicked the final Muslim stronghold off the Iberian Peninsula with their battle in Granada back in January of 1492. At the time that Columbus got the sponsorship, he was literally weeks past the Alhambra Decree, expelling Jewish people from both Castile and Aragon. That decree was signed in March of 1492. And let's not forget that back in 1478, Isabella started the Spanish Inquisition. 
The Spanish desire to spread Catholicism is far more than pure lip service to justify trade. This was a tangible desire of the Spanish. And well true that it was, in fact, more than pure lip service. The fact remains that trade remained one of the primary objectives of the Spanish. If the mission succeeded, the Spanish could have an express route to the Indies, giving them a large trade advantage while the rest of Europe struggled to catch up. With this huge advantage, Spain would become even more of a powerful force in Europe and would essentially take the role of the Republic of Venice as the middleman bringing goods into Europe. The final thing that they had to consider was keeping Columbus from going elsewhere. Both Isabella and Ferdinand II were aware that the Columbus brothers were actively shopping their expedition. Bartholomew had already been to England and France, and they didn't want another government to hire Columbus and get the rewards should the mission succeed. Now, Isabella received this advice from her treasurer, Luis Santanigel, who advised her that the trip was a small risk for a chance of glory, also taking time to point out to her that should Columbus go to another monarch, find success, she would face harsh criticism at home. From the perspective of the Spanish, therefore, the worst case was simply losing Columbus or having him fail in his mission, with the reward being riches and prestige throughout Europe. Spain could become the center of the trading world should Columbus succeed. With all this in mind, Isabella agreed and Columbus got his funding. On April 17, 1492, the capitulations of Santa Fe were agreed to. Columbus would be named the Admiral of the Ocean Sea at any island in the mainlands that he had already discovered. This was a hereditary title for life. Likewise, Columbus would be nominated Viceroy and Governor General on all the islands in mainland that he would discover. Now, most importantly for Columbus, he would have a right to one-tenth of everything found in the new territories. The discoveries were obviously much greater than anybody could anticipate. This leads to a long and interesting series of court cases when the Spanish decided that paying Columbus that one-tenth was not going to happen. On August 3rd, Christopher Columbus set out with his three ships, the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Sailing first to the Canary Islands, where he had to stop for supplies and repairs, Columbus would then leave again on September the 6th. On October 12th, a lookout, Martin Pinzon, on the Pinta, saw land. Now, per Ferdinand and Isabella, Pinzon would have received a lifetime pension. Except Christopher Columbus himself claimed that he had spotted land several hours earlier and took the pension for himself. Oh well. Columbus made landfall on what he named the island of San Salvador. However, despite knowing it was somewhere in the Bahamas, debate remains today exactly as to the location of Columbus's first discovery. Now, there is a modern-day island in the Bahamas called San Salvador. However, the island was named after the fact, and really it's only a guess that that may have been the place that Columbus first landed. Columbus would spend the next several weeks exploring the northern portions of what is today Cuba, as well as the island of Hispaniola. During his voyages, Columbus always believed that he had found the West Indies. Why is that? Remember that map that Columbus was using, the one from Toscanale? And remember how Columbus 
right before he made the trip, had given the crown some bad numbers and everybody doubted his math? Well, as it turns out, they were probably right to doubt the math because it was wrong. Likewise, the map by Toscanelli was also wrong. You see, Christopher Columbus had miscalculated the size of the ocean. He was incorrect about the size of the circumference of the earth and thought that the ocean was smaller than it actually was. At the same time, Toscanelli incorrectly predicted the size of Asia, thinking it extended much further to the east than it really did. Combined, that means the predicted location of Asia is nowhere close to where Columbus expected to find it. However, what everybody is at this point unaware of is that there were two additional continents in the middle of the ocean that just so happened to be roughly where Toscanelli and Columbus predicted that there would be land. It obviously wasn't the land that Toscanelli predicted that it would be, but nobody knew that at the time. Over on the website, I have included a copy of the Toscanelli map overlaid uh, on a modern world map. Now you can look at that and see where the confusion came from. And to take a quick break from the narrative, it occurs to me that I just mentioned the website and you may have no idea that I have a website. If you'd like to visit the Political History of the United States website, you can do so by going to uspoliticalpodcast.com. Now back to the story. Columbus finally wrapped up the journey on January 13th, 1493, and made his way back to Spain. During the return trip, Columbus would make a stop in Portugal, where it is possible that he came in contact with a young Ferdinand Magellan. Magellan would spend 1519 through 1522 circumnavigating the globe. Though, following a disastrous stop in the Philippines, Magellan would spend the final year of his journey dead. Columbus himself would make three more trips in his lifetime to the New World. The first two voyages of Columbus were focused on exploring the area in and around the Bahamas and the Caribbean. The third voyage saw Columbus explore the northern portions of South America, finding the mouth of the Orinoco River. Now, based on the amount of water flowing from the river, Columbus concluded that he was not looking at an island, but instead was looking at a new continent. Columbus wrote of the strip that he had found a previously unknown continent, and that God had made him the messenger of the new world. This is the first time in the sources that I can actually find the use of the term new world. But at the same time, however, the gravity of the discovery still appears to have been lost on Columbus. Columbus and his brother sketched what they believed to be the South American coast. In these sketches, they show a new continent, Mondo Novo. The continent appears to be a bulge off the coast of China, not a standalone continent, which we today know it is. On his final voyage, Columbus would explore Central America. By the end of the third voyage, Columbus had begun to fall out of favor with the Spanish monarchs. Columbus at this time had developed a reputation for harsh rule and general incompetence. This reputation had become so troubling that by the end of the third voyage, both Christopher and Bartholomew Columbus were imprisoned. While the Columbus brothers were ultimately freed and the crown agreed to fund for the voyage, Columbus would never again enjoy the degree of favor he once had with the Spanish crown. Columbus would never again be a governor in the New World. 
This becomes an important point as it provides the basis for the Spanish crown to deny Columbus that one-tenth share that he claims he was entitled to. As I said earlier, this does lead to a series of court cases, which does fall outside the scope of our story. Christopher Columbus would return from his final voyage in November of 1504. Two years later, Christopher Columbus dies. So the question now is, did Christopher Columbus succeed? This is a difficult thing to answer, and there is some level of debate on what success means. Let's not forget that when Columbus pitched his idea to the crown, the goal was to find a westerly route to India. Columbus failed in this mission. He never found India, nor did he ever get particularly close to India. Portugal, who had spent nearly half a century working on getting to India by going around the Cape of Africa, would finally succeed in 1498 when Vasco da Gama completed the journey. This opened up a water route that avoided the use of the Mediterranean and the Overland Passage. The success by da Gama established Portugal as an early imperial power and led to the rise of the Portuguese Empire. Though not known at the time of the death of Columbus, his discovery would lead to the creation of the Spanish Empire, an empire that would remain in place until the 1800s when Simón Bolívar began his process of ending Spanish rule in the Americas. In this way, Columbus did manage to bring great amounts of success to the future of Spain, though in a completely unintended and unexpected way. Today, the reputation of Columbus is another matter entirely. While he is still often celebrated as being a great explorer and a central figure of the Age of Discovery, in the late 20th century and early 21st century, his reputation for the treatment of native populations has largely come under scrutiny. Columbus was far from the only person to make the trek across the Atlantic. John Cabot would make the journey for England in 1497, landing initially in Newfoundland. Cabot believed that the fastest way to China was through a northerly route. However, much like Columbus, Cabot never found China as North America was in the way. Likewise, much the same as Columbus, Cabot never seemed to realize that North America was more than just a mere island. While Cabot failed to find a route to China, the spices or the gold that he was seeking for, he did discover some of the most important fisheries in the world fisheries that would be used for centuries thereafter. The Portuguese in 1499 launched an expedition led by Vicente Pinzon, which scouted the South American coast. During this trip, he would ultimately disembark in what would become Brazil. Now, in case you're wondering if that name Pinzon seems familiar, you're right. It's because we just talked about it a few minutes ago with his brother, Martin Pinzon. That's the guy who got cheated out of his pension by Columbus. Vincente is his little brother. Americo Vespucci would publish what is today known as the Mondos Novos letter in the early 16th century. In this letter, published sometime around 1503 to 1504, Vespucci would claim that what Columbus speculated to be a previously unknown portion of Asia was in fact an entirely new continent. Unlike Columbus, however, Vespucci recognized that the new continent was not connected to Asia and in fact was a previously unknown landmass. 
Over the next decade, this idea would rapidly grow and became increasingly accepted. By the end of the first decade of the 16th century, it was accepted that Columbus had discovered not the eastern portion of Asia, but something altogether new. It would not be until Magellan circumnavigated the globe between 1519 and 1522 that the actual Indies were discovered by traveling west. The final thing that I want to talk about in this episode is the Treaty of Tordesillas. The Treaty of Tordesillas is a treaty between the Spanish and the Portuguese to divide the New World. A dispute opened before the end of the first voyage of Christopher Columbus between Spain and Portugal. John II was relying on the 1479 Treaty of Alcavas, which stated that all the lands south of the Canary Islands belonged to Portugal. John II decided that he wanted to claim Columbus's discoveries for himself and began preparing an armada to go and take these new lands. Now, Ferdinand and Isabella had a serious problem here. They lacked the naval power to match the Portuguese in the Atlantic. Being in such a poor position militarily, Spain made the decision to seek a diplomatic solution as opposed to a military one. Initially, Pope Alexander VI attempted to mediate. However, John II found that the Pope was granting far too much to Spain. Wanting to avoid a military confrontation, Portugal and Spain continued to negotiate, and in 1494, the Treaty of Tordesillas was signed. Under the treaty, a line was drawn through the unknown lands. As a result, the Portuguese ended up with control over the eastern portion of what would later become Brazil. The Portuguese were also permitted to continue claiming land east of the line. Portugal left the table pleased that they were still able to conquer lands east of the line, as their interests lay largely in the islands around India and India itself. Of course, John II had no idea the size of South America. It wouldn't be until 1498 that Columbus would have the first clue that South America simply was not just some island. The result is that Spain ended up claiming nearly the whole of South America. While Spain would allow Portuguese expansion in Brazil specifically, the remainder of South America ended up becoming the basis for the Spanish Empire. Now, Spain and Portugal are not the only European powers. So what about the rest of Europe? Well, largely the answer is the rest of Europe simply ignored the Treaty of Tordesillas. This becomes especially pronounced following the Reformation in the middle of the 16th century. Suddenly, the newly Protestant countries cared far less that there was a treaty endorsed by the church. Next time, we will take a look at the political situation in Europe during the 16th century. We will check in and see who the major players are during the latter part of the 1500s and exactly what they were doing. It is under these conditions that the first English colonies in North America will be formed. I want to thank you all for listening. As many of you have probably figured out, this is my first ever episode podcasting. And I would love to hear your feedback and your ideas of what I can do to make this podcast even better. So I encourage you to go to the website and contact me. Again, the website is uspoliticalpodcast.com and leave me feedback. I appreciate you listening and we'll be back in two weeks for a tour of European politics. Thank you. 